In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So I know that you know that officially tomorrow is the day we remember. We remember sacrifices that have been made over a very long time to preserve the possibility of goodness and justice. Sometimes we fail at that, sometimes we aspire to it, but tomorrow we remember. And we also know that unofficially Monday sort of kicks off the beginning of summer. And whether or not that represents a, a marginalization of what the day really is, or, or actually a truth of its success, you, you can judge. But starting tomorrow, the, the day shifts, the season shifts, school is out, um, and there's possibilities in summer. And if you are fortunate and have the means to do so, you're going to go look for some rest in some other place, maybe. You're going to try to find a spot. You're going to find your beach, find your mountain, whatever it may be. You might want to get away. And uh, Lord knows the last 15 months has heightened the uh, desire for that impulse to, um, to escape, to go and be in a different place. What you want and what you properly desire is a break. What you're looking for is rest. And I don't know, if you've ever vacationed with children, you, you, you sometimes wonder, am I going to find rest here? Is, is, is that going to happen? Um, I tell myself that. Um, at other times, I could just sort of burn $3,000 in my backyard and it would be the same thing. But yeah, you understand, right? Does rest found there? I mean, there's, there's plenty of good things to be done. There's, there's plenty of things that we're, we're seeking in that. And if we're honest, um, what we really are searching for, if we should ever escape out of town, is, is what we actually see in this clip from What About Bob? What we, what we, if you don't know that story, I, I know our repository around here seems a little thin sometimes. Are, are we really going to go back and listen to Bob again? We are. All right? You can take it up with me later. But, uh, you know, Bob is, a, is the quintessential neurotic person. He's sought out the help of a distinguished psychologist. He's a little full of himself named Dr. Leo Marvin. Leo Marvin goes on vacation to Lake Winnipesaukee. And uh, Bob is of such a sort that he's actually tracked this place down and has gone to invade uh, uh, Dr. Leo Marvin's um, vacation. And so here in this moment, Leo Marvin reaches for anything that he can to help Bob contend with what he's really in search of. And uh, here's it. Bob, I'd like you to take a long look around you. What does everything you see here have in common? <laughs> Vacation, Bob. Vacation. Now, I can't, Bob, at this time, give you the kind of therapeutic attention you need to solve all your problems, and you know why. You're on vacation. Exactly. What I can do is this. Don't give me pills. I already have pills. This is not pills. Read it. It says, take a vacation from my problems. I'm giving you permission to take a vacation from. Not a vacation from your work and not a vacation from your daily life but a vacation for my problems. <laughs> exactly. Now, I want you to get on that bus and go back to New York. But every single time a problem arises, I want you to take that prescription out and follow it to the letter, doctor's orders. 
I'll see you in New York in my office in one month. This is incredible. This is astounding. For the first time since Esalen, I feel free. You've given me a great gift, Doctor. The gift of life. You're a great man. I knew coming up here was the right thing to do. It feels right because you're here. And it feels right because you're leaving. Have a great vacation. You too, Bob. A vacation from my problems. Bet I will. There you go. Baby steps. No one else could play that part. It's what we want. We want a vacation from our problems. We want to step out. We, we, look, there's all sorts of good things about getting to a different place, to, to uh, get a change of scenery, to decompress, to break from the routine. But there's all sorts of stuff here at home that we'd like to escape for a while, and that's a good reason. But when we come back, they're still here. And so whatever rest we're most desperately in need of, we need more than a vacation. And you know who knows that? Jesus does that. Shocker. Spoiler alert. We're going to listen to three verses, just three verses of what he had to say, a, a verses that you may have memorized also. And we're going to consider the nature of rest, the need for it, the source of it, and the path to it. We all want it. What is it? How do we find it? That's where we're going. So, if you will, it's going to be a short text, but could you stand anyway? Our central text for today is found in Matthew 11, 28-30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I told you it was short. You can sit. It goes so fast, and there is no context. We don't know who Jesus is speaking to. It doesn't say. We could speculate. Uh, Luke, you know, arranges material in certain ways for his own purposes to help us understand Jesus in a way that only uh, Luke can. But we don't know who he's really talking to. And, and all that means to us is that Whatever Jesus just said, it doesn't apply just to a very narrow subset of people. It applies to everybody. I'm in that crowd. So are you. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to everyone. And he knows his audience. And he knows this audience. And that's why he says to us, Come to me, all you are who are heavy, weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Everybody can relate to that. You all bring into this room whatever version of weariness that you have. Weariness certainly varies across populations. Not everybody's had the same experience. Not everybody feels the same struggle that some people do. But we all can relate to the idea that weariness is a universal experience. And if weariness of whatever sort is a universal experience, 
then we're talking about a universal need for rest also. And I think that's what we're learning here just from the first couple lines from Jesus' word. Everybody is in need of rest. Let me just remind you in case you're not sure of that. Let's, let's rewind to ourselves about 15 months ago when we were all just beginning to grapple with what was becoming, what was befalling this world. And I, I had never read Albert Camus' The Plague. And then I read The Plague and I go, my gosh, this man knows a few thing or two about plagues. And if you remember us, uh, referencing him in a different couple of sermons last April or May, then you remember that he would define what happens to people when they go through an extended season of plague. That they kind of naturally, we kind of naturally turn inward. We, we kinda, we're kind of existentially hypothermic. Uh, everything that we need to survive kind of gets, gets moved to the core, and that's, and that's what we do. And therefore, any of the the concerns or the interests or the obligations that we have that are maybe farther away and more of a distance from us, those kind of things, they get, we, we cut those loose. We let them drift. We, we have lost the energy, the stamina, the wherewithal, whatever you want to call it, uh, to be able to be present in all the ways that we once were. And, and a plague will do that to you. And I, I wonder, I won't ask for a show of hands if you felt that. It's just one take on the nature of weariness. But let's... Let's fast forward several decades, way, way past Albert Camus writing in that work. There's a, an author for the New York Times named Adam Grant. He wrote an article last month that got a lot of traction in which he was trying to find a word that captured what a lot of people were feeling. They could describe it, but they couldn't pinpoint it to a word. And, and there in this article, uh, he says this. He says, it wasn't burnout. We still had energy. It wasn't depression. We didn't feel hopeless. We just felt somewhat joyless and aimless. And it turns out there's a name for that. Languishing. Languishing is a sense of stagnation and emptiness. It feels as if you're muddling through your days, looking at your life through a foggy windshield. And it might be the dominant emotion of 2021. I, I would love to hear from the students who are graduating or who are already in a different place whether you have felt that this year. With everything disrupted and you having to adapt in all sorts of ways, was there a part of you that thought, I'd rather just sort of turn the camera off? Yeah, a lot of people did. Now, Adam Grant, by the end of that article, at least offers some suggestions on how you can step out of that hole. But, but there are other authors that are perhaps not so optimistic. There's an author I've shared with you. His name is Freddie DeBoer. Uh, he just wrote a book called The Cult of Smart. And, um, well, just hear what he had to say. He, he wrote an article called, um, You're Exhausted Because Life is Pain. <laughs> right? And, yeah. And he says this, We're forced to spend more and more of our time preparing to secure or securing a minimal material survival. We watch our principles and dreams fall down around us like confetti at a ticker tape parade. We are forced to endure the drudgery and meaningless of work. We come to realize that disappointment is the default state of human life. We experience the horrors of aging. We inevitably die, usually in terrible pain and terror. There is no afterlife waiting for us and no God to give us the whole thing of meaning. That's why you're tired. Hemlock, anyone? Right? No, he's not at church today, <laughs> right? If you see the world that way, you're, you're more than just weary. You, you are losing the sense or even a will to care. Now, I, I certainly don't mean to exaggerate or project upon any number of us. 
what you've just heard in those slides, but I would say that we can all relate in some way, whether you have felt yourself turning inward and, and cutting your losses or, or languishing or just kind of looking around and concluding that life is pain. Whatever the case may be for you, your vitality has been taken. And you have to ask yourself, what now? A vacation will help you take a break. A vacation might provide you from perspective. But there is still a weariness that you still have to contend with even when you come home. And that's why we, of all the things that Jesus could have told us, of all the things that he might have covered in his ministry, the fact that he mentioned the fact that he knows that we're weary, God bless him. He gets us. He gets it. Because when it comes to rest, there's a universal need for rest. And yet, let's be very clear, Jesus is not merely or exclusively sympathetic to that need. He feels our pain, but it's more. He's not just sympathetic, he's something more to it. We have a universal need of rest, but there is a very particular source of rest. That's my second point. Let me set it up this way. In 2004, at a tech conference in San Diego, there was a couple of tech journalists that were looking for a word to arrive at, to describe uh, the efforts of many who were trying to find some quick and dirty solutions to add some efficiency and productivity to their workflows. And in that article that they wrote now 17 years ago, they came up with the word life hack. That life's full of problems, that a hack is a, is a quick and dirty solution to that. It works. It's elegant, even if it's a little um, crude, and yet it works. And, and therefore, anybody that is able to find those kinds of life hacks to increase your productivity and your efficiency, and therefore to provide you a little less labor and a little more rest, those are the people we listen to. Those are the ones that we pay big bucks to. Those are the ones that write books and go on the lecture circuit that we arrive, that we admire. They've come up with life hacks. Just do these five things, life will be easier and freer and more full of rest. You and I know, and maybe you've read the books, and college students are probably you know, hearing all sorts of things. If you'll just do this, your life will be all the better. And you read it, and you try it, and you go, huh. Why do I bring all that up? When Jesus says to me, when Jesus says to us in this text, come to me, there are enough commentators who note the fact that Jesus doesn't just merely say, come, come with me, like, like you're at the Apple store and the, the agent is going to, here, let me show you how to install the update. This is Jesus saying, come to me. I am your rest. I am not here to offer you a life hack. I am not here to give you just a, a set of, of skills and routines that you know, doesn't really require me at all. It's just sort of the, the information I impart to you and then everything will be fine. He says, come to me. I am your rest. And therefore, as surely as there is a universal need for rest, Jesus is saying that there is a particular source of rest, and that source of rest is in him. Now, full stop. Depending on what your view of Jesus is right now, you, you, you may admire him, adore him, you may be skeptical of him. You can read that line, come to me, and think that is either the most egotistical thing someone could say or the most endearing. And that's why you got to back up just a couple verses in this passage where 
we didn't have time to read it, but we certainly have to refer to it. But in Matthew 11, starting there in verse 25, Jesus is, or yeah, there in verse 25, Jesus is out to say to us that the Lord discloses himself in all sorts of ways that are virtually self-evident. That's what, that's what Paul says in Romans 1. If you'll just look up, if you'll just consider the fact that there are quasars, that there is now a, a wonderful new uh, photograph of, of the galaxy that you all can see online this week. If you'll just look at that and go, if you, you know, it, it's not a proof of anything, but it's certainly a good deduction that maybe there's a hand behind it. Some things about God are self-evident, but there are other things about God that he's going to have to reveal to you on his own and by his prerogative. And so Jesus speaks in chapter 11, verse 25. He says this, At this time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Some important things about God, anybody can discern. But some most important things about God, God has to choose to reveal those to you. And you don't have to be a scholar or philosopher or the ability to speak in complete sentences to know those things. You just have to be humble enough to receive them. The gospel is for anyone that will humble themselves before him. And that humbling is actually the work of the Father himself in us. And what is it that Jesus would say is at the top of the things that God has been out to reveal, that the Father has been out to reveal, that's what you hear there in verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. In other words, Jesus is saying, I know the Father, and the Father knows me like no one knows each other. That what Jesus has come to explain to us is, is far more than just a set of principles or a guidance or wisdom, even though he has to offer to that. He's come to tell us that he and the Father know each other like no one knows him. And you may hear that and, and say to yourself, so what? What difference does that make? For Jesus to be able to claim to us that in him is rest, there's a reason he can claim that, and that is because he knows the Father more than anyone else. He is, as the author of Hebrews says, the exact imprint of God's nature. So yes, I know, at first to hear him say, come to me, I'll give you rest. At first you go, I don't know everybody makes promises to me and so few of them actually keep them. Why should I trust you? Because I know the Father like nobody does. Now, at this point, I know you. You're sighing inside. I can tell. Because for me to say to you, in Jesus is your rest, you're probably going, how wonderfully poetic that sounds. It's nothing like I haven't heard it before, but throw us a bone, man. What does that mean? How do we get there? In what sense is Jesus our rest? Here's the third thing he's got to say to us. Yes, there's a universal experience, a universal need for rest. Yes, there's a particular source of rest, and that source is in Jesus. But there's a path to that rest, and that path is a paradox. Ooh, a big boy word, paradox. What does that mean? What's a paradox? Uh, a paradox is is uh, two truths that seem to be mutually exclusive that could never go together, and yet if you'll look at them carefully and, and honestly and with integrity, you realize they're both true. So, you know, there's a line in, uh, there's a, line in a Bob Dylan song. Um, 
but I was so much older then, I'm younger than that now. Which, it, it's Bob. It's a paradox. And, and the path to this rest is a paradox in that, I'll, say, I'll put it this way, when you and I think of rest, you would usually define rest as either doing nothing or doing something different or just doing whatever you want. And all those things work. And they all help you re to recover some things. And I'm not, I'm not throwing shade on any of that stuff. All of those things work. That's how you and I think of rest. But Jesus' version of rest is not that. Oh, he doesn't mind if you take rest. I mean, it's a Sabbath, right? He, he, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He means for us to do things that are unlike what we do. He means for us to break out of our routine. He, he would delight in us finding places to recharge, as they say. And yet Jesus' version of rest, the rest that's for your souls, is not doing whatever you want. It's not doing nothing. The paradoxical path to rest is what you and I might call an apprenticeship. What's an apprentice? I don't know. There's the dark lord and he always has an apprentice, right? And as an apprentice, you, you are with someone, you, you, you watch them closely, you, you try your hand at what they do, you you learn a lot through failing, but you do so under the watchful and loving care of a mentor. That's what an apprentice is. I, I know uh, around here we talk about disciples because Jesus did. Jesus says, you know, go and make disciples. And therefore, you and I in turn talk about discipleship. But sometimes we can even hear that word and it kind of gets lost in the theological ether like we're looking through a fog. What is discipleship? It's apprenticeship. It is learning from him. And that's why he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me what a what a funny image he would use here and certainly one that is kind of like what what's that about i mean we're not so far away from an agricultural history or or culture to know what a yoke is a yoke you know the thing that you you put it on an ox or some other beast of burden and they harness that um yoke to some sort of weight behind them and then they you know they till the field and in that moment it is a a yoke is thought of as a tool, but a yoke is also a sign of submission. Obviously, the ox is not in charge, right? The ox is doing the bidding of his master. That's Jesus is saying, take my yoke upon you. There is something for you to carry, and that, that burden is for you to learn from me. And to learn from me means that you have to implicitly trust me, and that means that that trust implies submission. So, what he's asking us to do is to apprentice in life with him. And he says that that yoke is easy, that that burden is light. And we hear, you know, the Apostle John say of Jesus, his commands are not burdensome. And as soon as I say those things, you, you have to ask yourself, what does that mean? You know the perfect picture of it? It's Jesus' mom. Tradition has, has sort of loved to say that of, of Mary, she was Jesus' first disciple. She was Jesus' first apprentice. And, and, and she summarizes that posture from just one thing she does. You know when Jesus in John 2 changes the water into wine, or he's about to, like, everybody's like, the, the wine, they're, they're running out of wine, dude. Um, what are you going to do about it? And he goes, woman, it's not my hour. And she kind of says, no, honey, it's your hour. <laughs> and so she says to the people that are the attendants there, he says, do whatever he tells you. 
do whatever he tells you. That's Mary talking to you today. Do whatever he tells you. That's what being an apprentice is. And that, friends, is the paradoxical path to rest. That somehow, in doing all that he says, teaching them to observe everything that I have taught you, somehow in that is rest. And as soon as I say that, you're saying, <laughs> ah, okay, wait a minute. Uh, I know what else Jesus says. Uh, let's, let's rewind the whole tape. Let's look at the whole record, Pastor. Jesus says at times, you've got to count the cost. And other times Jesus says, you've got to carry your own cross. And it's sometimes he's so stark as saying, unless you renounce everything, you can't be my disciple. Now that sounds like a high bar. That doesn't sound like rest. So how can he tell us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light when he elsewhere says those things that at first glance sound like, uh, are those my only options, Jesus? Here's the thing. The reason that Jesus can say with a straight face to us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light is this. His way is rest has everything to do with everything that steals your rest. The reason he can say that his way is rest has everything to do with all of the things that steal yours and my rest. What are those things? It's, it's not a long list. I'll give you four. They'll go really fast. Do you know what tires you out? Everything you're afraid of. The stuff you think you need to see, but you can't see. The stuff you think you need to fix, but you can't fix. The stuff that you think you need to control, but you can't control. You go there. You want that. You want to rearrange that scenario. You'll be afraid because you can't. There's too much out of your control. Have we not learned anything in the last 15 minutes? You, everything changes on a dime. And if you think you need to know and need to be in control, you will be afraid. But if you will apprentice with Jesus, he will say to you, as he says so many times in the Gospels, why are you so afraid? He will say to you, do not be anxious. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. He will say, do not fear even those who can kill the body. That if you and I would apprentice with Jesus, somehow in the midst of that, he is, he is asking us to walk in a way and to take on a sense of understanding and responsibility that certainly makes the things that we're carrying that we're afraid of more burdensome. One thing that's stealing your rest is everything that you're afraid of, and he speaks to that. Another thing is everything that you're angry about. Who knows all the things that you're angry about as you walk in this room today? I can guess. Some of you have told me. Now, not all anger is the same. There is a righteous anger. You can look at greed or corruption or injustice or oppression, and you can be rightfully angry about that because you would want to do something about that in order to fix it. That's in some ways, anger is just another expression of an intense desire to love, to, to love what is good and to see that goodness uh, promulgated in the world. But Friends, here's the thing. Jesus gets that. He knows that. He sympathizes with that. He, he demonstrates that. He gets in between those who are being harmed and those who are harming. He doesn't just sympathize with it. He calls it out. And where he can get in the middle of it, he does. 
The thing about even our righteous angers is they can swallow us. They can make us weary, and Jesus shows us a way, if we will apprentice with him, that demonstrates to us a way of being angry that does not consume us. You have to see it from his point of view. You have to apprentice with him in that way, otherwise your angers will take everything from you. And not just your righteous angers, more often than not your unrighteous angers. I can be mad at my children, or at my spouse, or at the way things are, and that just shrivels me up inside. And there's all sorts of things that you and I might be angry about that we have no control over that we're so self-righteous about, we're so convinced about. And it takes, and it takes, and it takes. And what does Jesus say by calling us to be an apprentice? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Jesus says to us what God says to Jonah. Do you have a right to be angry? Really? You have a right? Tell me about it, honey. If he had to die for us, that has to humble us, especially the things that make us angry in an unrighteous way. If you will apprentice with him, there is a kind of rest apart from the things that will weary you. There's a second thing. Here's a third. Everything that you're compulsive about, everything that you think that you need in order to be happy. You might rightfully like something and want something and desire something, and that's, that's not a problem. It's when you turn that desire into a demand or when you turn um, a pattern of things that you enjoy into a right, into a mandate, into a, an expectation and an obligation. And when those things don't turn out, you, you become all torn up inside. It's a compulsion. It's, it's a way of living in which God is not even necessary to your existence. You just need these things to line up and then everything will be fine. And God, you know, if he shows up, you know, that's gravy. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know, is a, was a, a German pastor, is a theologian. He, he was executed two weeks before the end of World War II, um, you know, serving out time in Flossenburg prison. And he always has a way with words. And I'm going to read you a paragraph from something that he said. And at first you're going to go, what? What? Trust me, I'll, I'll explain it. He says this. We do believe in all sorts of things. Far too many things, in fact. We believe in power. We believe in ourselves and in other people. We believe in humankind. We believe in our own people and in our religious community. We believe in new, in new ideas. But in the midst of all these things, we do not believe in the one in God. And believing in God would take away our faith in all the other powers, make it impossible to believe in them. If you believe in God, you don't believe in anything else in this world because you know it will all break down and pass away. Now, everything hinges on what he means by the word believe. He's not saying you're not supposed to believe in your friend or you know, in your teachers or in your spouse or, or that the car will take you home. He's not... He's not talking about like you can't entrust yourself in any way, in any way, shape, or form to things that are of this world. He's just saying, please don't turn them into some sort of substitute for believing in God. Because when you do, you've set yourself up for a massive disappointment because they will pass away. Uh, it's somebody else's analogy, but the truth of the matter is, in a room like this, there will come a point where there is only one of you in this room that's left alive, and all of us will be dead. <laughs> Cheery. Let's go to vacation that way. Everything's passing. Where do you place your hope? In your degree, students? In what your kids end up turning out, parents? 
in whether or not your job is going to be here next year, employees. All those things are good. They're just not God. And if you're not careful, you'll turn them into a compulsion. And you want to talk about weary? Compulsion is weary. Last thing. You know what you're most haunted by? Everything you regret. The stuff you can't do over. The stuff you can't take back. It's, it's the proverbial uh, toothpaste out of the tube that you can't put back in the tube except that it's caused harm and damage. And you can't just fix it. You can, you can try, but what do you do? And not just in the ways you've harmed things, it's in just opportunities that you've forsaken. Regrets can follow us aplenty, and when they do, they haunt us. And when they haunt us, they deprive us and they make us curl up in the fetal position and want to just go to bed. Friends, if, if Jesus can say to a thief on the cross who had pretty much wasted everything and was now down to his last breath, if Jesus can say to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. And if in dying and rising he has come to tell us that in him is forgiveness, then friends, the regret will still leave a sting and may still leave a scar. But there in him is healing. And in that healing is a kind of rest that we're all going to need. This is the paradox. If you will apprentice in him, the things that are most wearisome to you will be less of a burden than of the burden of walking in his way and learning from him. That's the paradox. And that paradox is just slightly one other thing because, look, I, I know and you know that we've had people in our lives that have been very directed, directive to us. They've given us insight. And sometimes, though, their demeanor or their manner has come across as nothing less than a drill sergeant or a taskmaster. Beloved, that is not Jesus. Because in the middle of this that gets so lost in the shuffle of everything he's had to say about come to me, take my yoke upon you, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, he says something about himself. I am gentle and lowly of heart. I do not come around to you with a whip. I do not speak to you with scorn. Oh, I may come with you with discipline, but it's the only kind of discipline that everybody knows that the discipline that's being offered is offered in love. Thomas Goodwin was a theologian of two centuries ago. He says, we're apt to think that he being so holy is therefore of a severe and sour disposition against sinners and not able to bear them. No, says he, I am meek. Gentleness is my nature and my temper. How do I know that? Because before he ever asks any of us to take his yoke upon us, we have to first let him his, carry his cross for us. Before any of us can ever take his yoke upon us, we have to first let him carry his cross for us. Apprenticing in him is not to gain his favor, it's to walk in it. And to discover that there's a fullness in it. That grace 
that he gives us leads to a maturing in him such that we discover what life is, such that we discover what rest is. That's the gospel. That's the paradoxical path. If you think you can get by with just hearing about what he says about forgiveness, but then never wanting to understand even more about what it means to walk in his way, please don't be surprised if the rest of your life feels rather wearisome. At risk of sounding like a groupie, I know I've quoted this guy a lot in the last six weeks, but if you'll just read his conversion story, um, it will be unlike what you something that you've heard before, I think. But Paul Kingsnorth, the Brit that lives on those acreages in Ireland, he, was, he, he talks about his story, and, and we're going to hear more of that soon, but he kind of came to a conclusion about why he landed on Jesus, having gone through a decade of considering Eastern faiths and other traditions and, and coming out of an environmental movement in which it, it demanded a kind of action, but he didn't know what would motivate it. He said this, I grew up believing what all modern people are taught, that freedom meant lack of constraint. Orthodoxy taught me that this freedom was no freedom at all, but enslavement to the passions. A neat description of the first 30 years of my life. True freedom, it turns out, is to give up your will and follow God's. To deny yourself, to let it come. I'm terrible at this, but at least now I understand the path. The gate is straight, and the way is narrow, and maybe we will always fail to walk it. But is there any other road that leads home? I hope that for you this summer, if you have opportunity and means to go someplace and enjoy that place, I hope you come back. I hope, I hope it replenishes you in some important way. I'm just here to remind you. Hey, don't forget that we've got to pay the bills around here, so don't forget about us. Look, I'm just here to say, I hope, that, I, hope that's go, I hope that's good for you. I, I don't wish any kind of weariness on a vacation, even though for some it will be. I'm just here to say this. Your deepest rest is in apprenticeship with Jesus. And the more you and I begin to embrace it, the more we might find a kind of rest that we've needed, that we thought a vacation could supply. Let's pray. So now what, Jesus? Where from here? What have we never thought about that we need to learn for the first time? Or what have, what have we done for decades that we've let drift for any number of reasons that we need to recover? Not, not to prove to ourselves our discipline. Not to applaud ourselves for the way in which we come to master our schedules or our rhythms but so that we might have more of you, that we might believe more of you, that we might walk in more of your way because you're gentle and lowly of heart and because your love is steadfast. Father, show us what's the next right thing to do, but always in the belief that your love is real and everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen. And now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. Amen. You're dismissed.